This is week number 14 in our study of the, the book of Daniel. And last week we began chapter 4, and we talked for a little while about how this is the chapter <coughs> that many of the liberals aim at or take attack on because of what's written in it. And you remember we discussed some of their arguments against this book or against this chapter that deals with Nebuchadnezzar really losing his mind, going mad and grazing like an animal for seven periods of time. They attack that because they say that none of the ancient documents speak of this time in Nebuchadnezzar's life, that they they never talk about um, him being a ruler and then going mad and then being reestablished. And then they also say that this is uh, an absurd chapter. This couldn't really happen to a man. How could a man be the ruler of the, the earth, really, and then for, for seven periods of time be absent from that rule and then be reestablished in it? That's, that's absurd. Someone else would have taken over. He would have never been able to be reestablished. And then they talk about uh, the uh, absurdity of a man having hair that grows like eagle's feathers or toenails and fingernails that grow to be like a bird's claws. That, that, that's just uh, hyperbola. That's just uh, a fable that these things really didn't happen, that you know, this is just an absurd thing. These are impossible um, actions that we're talking about. They could never happen. And then they also argue that these things really aren't talking um, about the future. Matter of fact, they weren't even written in in the 6th century B.C. They were written in the 2nd century B.C. And instead of being a foretelling of the future, they're just a a rehearsal. It's a history lesson of what's already taken place. And and these um, really aren't talking about a Messiah or about a, a, a coming fight that's going to take place, but they're really talking about Antiochus Epiphany, who lived in like 170 BC and destroyed Jerusalem. That's what this is all about, has nothing to do with the future. And so that's what the liberals say, and this really ought to be dismissed as part of the scripture because this shouldn't ever have been included in the canon. And so we talked about how do you answer those things when Um, These are the reasonings of men, and these are uh, strong statements that they make. And and we talked about several things. that Just because the ancient documents don't um, speak of this time in Babylon uh, really means nothing, because we don't have every detail of all the history that was written during the era of the Babylonian Empire. We have just a small, small fragment of it. And matter of fact, there may be a time coming when we'll discover more of it that may speak of this time. So that's really not a legitimate argument. And then that a king couldn't be set as king and then not be king for seven years and then reestablished. Matter of fact, the book of Daniel speaks directly to that and says that it's God who appoints the kings and removes the kings and what would be too hard for God to do? That he, he couldn't have a king and then no king and then reestablish that king? If he desired to do that, he certainly could. That's the, the theme of the book of Daniel speaks to that issue. And then their, their argument that these things are just absurd, that they, they could never have taken place. They're impossible 
that these things actually took place, well, we look and we say, well, what is impossible with God? What's too hard for God to accomplish, right? And this is God's judgment against Nebuchadnezzar. He could cause anything he wanted to to happen in his creation. And so all these arguments, all these uh, supposals, you know, and you talk about that this is really talking about Antiochus. Well, how could that be when Christ, in his prediction of what's going to happen in the end times, references back to Daniel and says, this is what Daniel was writing about. Do the, do the liberals just ignore those statements of, of Christ in, in Matthew 24? So you have to then start cutting pieces out of the New Testament if you're going to hold to that argument because Christ verified this book. He, he um, established that Daniel was writing the truth and was writing about not only not about Antiochus, but writing about a time even after Christ because he said these things are yet to happen. So these arguments really don't hold any water. They're just the reasonings of men's minds who don't believe that God is capable of the supernatural, who don't believe God's involved in his creation and want to dismiss the veracity of the book of Daniel. And so there's really no reason to do that. And so we stand opposed to those people. We accept that Daniel wrote this book in the 6th century B.C., that he was predicting what was going to happen in future generations, and that the image that Nebuchadnezzar had is not just for the ancient world, but extends all the way to the end of the time when God establishes his kingdom, that it covers all of those times, not just the Greeks and the Romans, which he will go into great detail about, but it's much more expansive than that. And so we reject the arguments of the liberals, and we believe this book is inspired by the Holy Spirit, that as Daniel penned these words, he was guided by the inspiration of the Spirit, and that these things speak nothing but the truth. And so we talked about that last week, and, and about why is it that they bring these arguments and it's because they don't believe that Daniel could have written in such precise detail what was going to happen in future events. They can't accept that. Whereas we readily accept that, knowing that God could reveal to Daniel's mind whatever he desired to, and that it was God who was directing that history that is now history for us, and it was he who was accomplishing his purposes. And so that's where we stand with the book. We accept it into the canon. And we'll talk about that a little bit today about some other writings that truly shouldn't be accepted versus those that should be and, and try and make some distinctions about that if we get that far today. So we'll go back and, and read what we read last week, uh, just the first 18 verses of this chapter. We covered about the first four or five, but I want to just review them quickly so we can then walk through the rest of the passage. So beginning in Daniel chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, there the scripture reads, Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. 
I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream, and it made me fearful. And these fantasies, as I lay on my bed, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in, and I related the dream to them, but they could not make, known, make its interpretation known to me. But finally Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him, saying, O Belteshazzar, Belteshazzar chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream which I have seen along with this interpretation. Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking and behold there was a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong and its height reached to the sky and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. I was looking in my visions in my mind as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it, in the new grass of the field, in the new grass of the field. And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts of the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man. And let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers. And, by the, and the decision is a command of the holy ones. In order that the living may know that the most high, rule, high is ruler over the realm of mankind. And bestows it on whom he wishes. And sets over it the lowliest of men. This is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, tell me its interpretation inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make it known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. And we we talked about this last week, that this this whole chapter seems to be um, a proclamation an announcement, um, a decree, however you want to think about that, by King Nebuchadnezzar, not just to the people that he rules directly over, but to the whole world, to every person who's alive on the planet. Now, we know that Nebuchadnezzar did not rule over every single person, but this we also is true, that his influence did affect every single person, such as... Egypt wanted to expand their borders, but they couldn't because Nebuchadnezzar pushed them back into Egypt. So even in the the places where he did not directly rule, Nebuchadnezzar still had influence and people still knew who he was. 
And so he makes this proclamation to everybody on the planet. And so as he does that, um, he relates. It appears this whole, um, this whole vision, this whole proclamation of what the angelic watchers said, the whole uh, instruction to Daniel, the response of Daniel, all of that is in the proclamation that went out to the whole world. This is Nebuchadnezzar um, making proclamations of things that he believed were true. Now, he says he, he, he does this um, because he wants the whole world, he wants to make known to the whole world the signs and wonders that God has done. Now, we talked about this last week. What signs and wonders has Nebuchadnezzar seen at this point in time when he, when he makes this proclamation? All right, he saw the guys in the furnace not get burned. What else? All right, the interpretation of his first dream by Daniel, right, about the image and the coming kingdom of God. What else? human boys flourishing when they believe in only vegetables and water. All right, the three guys, the four guys who uh, were, you know, ten times better than anybody else. That's an exaggeration, but nevertheless, they were better than everybody else. And then what's another one that, that would have been very poignant in Nebuchadnezzar's mind? Yeah, by the time he writes this, this is past. So he is talking about this event also. And then the one that really struck him that we could, I mean, is it a separate or is it with the guys in the fiery furnaces? Is that he saw um, God or the Son of God in the furnace with those four, three guys. That he, he saw it with his own eyes. God revealed himself to Nebuchadnezzar in the midst of the fire. And so he's seen these things that um, he knows are better than anything that any of his gods could do. He knows the distinction of these four things. And so he makes this proclamation. He says it right there. Um, in verse 3, how great are his signs and his mighty wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. How did he know that? How did he know that the kingdom of the Holy One would endure forever and that it would be from generation to generation forever? How did he know that? He did, but does that in itself tell him that it's going to last forever? I mean, how did he know that? He's repeating the words that Daniel spoke to him when he interpreted that part of the dream. That Daniel says exactly that. You'll have to help me find it, but it's back in chapter um, 2 and I think maybe close to the end. Yeah, 34, 44. Um, In those days, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. 
and it'll be left to the peoples who are there from generation to generation. So then Nebuchadnezzar is just repeating things that have been spoken to him. He's wanting the people to understand the things that he now understands. Okay, now we'll have to talk about Nebuchadnezzar and his position in believing in God or not believing in God. But we, we'll talk about that a little later on as we go through here. But these are the things that Nebuchadnezzar knows are true and are different. And he wants the whole world to know about these things. And, you know, the people who were in the Babylonian kingdom, they would have known about the fiery furnace, right? We talked about that. I mean, they were there. That's what would have captivated their attention. They would have taken that back to all the Babylonians. But, but Nebuchadnezzar is speaking this to everybody on the planet. And the reason he speaks to everybody on the planet is because this vision involves everybody on the planet. This very event takes into the, place, the whole world. Everybody um, is involved in this vision that he's recounting here. And we'll see that as we, as we look at the tree. So um, when, Daniel saw, when Nebuchadnezzar saw this, what was his reaction to this tree? He's afraid. Now, the question is, why is he afraid? I mean, this is just a tree, large tree, that gets chopped down, and then, you know, um, the person that it represents goes mad. So would he necessarily have associated this with himself? Yeah, why? Why? Why does he take this vision of a large tree and associate it with himself? All right, Daniel definitely had told him that he, part of the statue, right? That he was the head of the statue way back in chapter 2, right? Maybe. But this is a tree. Okay, yeah, the last, well, and Nebuchadnezzar is somewhat self-absorbed, right? I mean, if he has a dream, it's got to be about him, right? But there's more than that. If you go and you can look in, um, in the Psalms, or you could look in Ezekiel, or you could look in Jeremiah, and many other places that trees are used as images of people and of um, uh, the things they accomplish. That is not unique just to Daniel. Matter of fact, in the Persian writings, they use trees to speak of people also. So it's not both biblical and extra-biblical writings use trees to speak about people. So this would not have been unusual for Nebuchadnezzar to associate himself, especially with a large tree that was strong and mighty. And in verse 15, it begins using the analogy It does. Well, the stump is spoken of as a person. Absolutely. You know, the first, dream, he, the first dream, he was definitely asking for it, right? Because he said, what will become of my kingdom? And then God showed him not only his kingdom, but all the kingdoms. 
you know, and he may have been doing the same thing. He's on his bed again, right? This must be what kings do. And he's daydreaming again. And, and you know, the scripture even uses the word fantasies. He's thinking about what will be. And, and you know, and it's a year before this actually happens from the point in time that he's speaking of here. It takes a whole year before these events actually take place. And so... Um, but Nebuchadnezzar is definitely focused on himself, on his kingdom, on how great it is and expansive it is, and how he can make it even better. And so he has this dream. Now, where does this dream come from? Where did the first dream come from? For what purpose? Show him what the future was, right? I mean, expressly the interpretation says that. Okay, so what is the purpose of this dream? Show what's going to happen in the future, and, and more than that, more than that. What's, what's this dream for? Why does God give Nebuchadnezzar this dream? Yeah, God wants everybody to understand how much control he has over his creation. Not just that he's in control and he can tell you what's going to happen in the future, but he can make specific events take place. And he does. And that will be, and Nebuchadnezzar will be the example that he uses to show that. And, and this, proclam- this is why this proclamation is to the whole world. This is God wanting everybody on the planet to understand and to see how mighty he is. And the the angelic watcher, and we'll talk about those terms, will say exactly that as we get into it. All right, so we pick up, all these things are things that we somewhat talked about last week, but then you begin in verse um, 6 as Nebuchadnezzar is having this, and he gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men. And that's really the term we should use. When they start using the term sorcerers and magicians and all of that, we really should be using scholars as opposed to those guys. These are the guys who studied astronomy. They studied the the creation. They studied the ancient writings. They knew the languages. They knew what the scriptures were. They knew what the other writings were. These guys had all of this knowledge. These are the scholars. These are the educated guys. Okay, they're not magicians in the way that we think of magicians. They're not sorcerers in the way that that conjures up things in your mind. That's not who they are. These are the educated elite. Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar brings them all in, tells them his dream, and like in the first dream, what's their response? They have no clue what this dream means, right? And you would assume this included Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego also. That they would have been included in that group because they're one of the educated. They're better than everybody else other than Daniel, right? So you'd assume that they're in this group of wise men. Now, why is Daniel not in with this group of people? I mean, Nebuchadnezzar had appointed him to be leaders to be the leader of the scholars. You remember that at the end of the interpretation of the dream? Not only did he give him uh, great rewards and bounty, but he made him chief of 
the wise men. So why is Daniel not included in this group? You're talking about Nebuchadnezzar here, yeah. yes. But I think having recognized himself in the symbolism of the tree, when he realized that humiliation could be in store, and I don't think he wanted anything to do with Daniel's God at this point. Yeah. He knew that he was going to hear the truth from Daniel, and I don't think he wanted to face the truth. I, I think that's part of it. That mm-hmm. you know, it's not like it's escaped Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel could definitely interpret this dream. I mean, if he can interpret the other dreams when no one else could. Matter of fact, he told him his dream and then interpreted it. If he could do that, then he knows what this dream means. So I think he has been excluded by Nebuchadnezzar on purpose. But it also serves for another purpose in the scriptures, which is what? What what does this show you that Daniel's not in this group? I do think that is part of God's purpose. I mean, God is gracious to Nebuchadnezzar to show him all these things through his reign. I mean, he has been so gracious that, you know, there's no other king before him or after him who God shows this much revelation to. Nobody. Especially a Gentile king who destroyed Jerusalem and took the people away. There's nobody else that you can point to in history who has this much revelation given to them. Go ahead. He was not there when, when all the other guys had to bow down to the statue. I, I think what it shows us is the unique position and person of Daniel. Just how unique he was, even in the Babylonian kingdom, that you never see him included with anybody else. He's always extra special. He's always unique. He always stands apart because of his relationship to his God. And Nebuchadnezzar understands that. It's, it's not like it escaped his attention. You know, we only have a few examples of this in the lives of Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. You know, Nebuchadnezzar would have seen this every day. He'd have seen things like this all the time in the life of Daniel because they were side by side. Daniel was at his side in the king's court. And so he would have seen Daniel doing extra special stuff all the time. And so he purposely, I believe, excludes Daniel. But for God's purposes, to show us how unique Daniel is and how special he is. I mean, he's in a class all of his own. He doesn't get included with, he doesn't even get included with his friends. You know, he's the one that went and asked his friends to pray with him. So he's even excluded from his own friends who are faithful believers. Go ahead. He does. And then, he, then he says, I call him this after my God. But he, in, in Nebuchadnezzar's recanting of this situation, he identifies him by his Jewish name. Right. And then he says, I call him this, but it's almost a, a respect that even though I changed your name when I took you, you've become so unique that I'll still reference your Jewish name and, to an extent. And why does he do that? Why does he call him by his Hebrew name? Recognize him, 
Well, we, back at the beginning when Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 2, which the Most High God has done for me, who's he talking about? Daniel's God, right? He's not talking about his gods. He's talking about Daniel's gods. You remember at the end of chapter 3, we saw that clearly, that he calls him the Most High God because he saved them from the fire. So he's greater than any God that he knew because who can, who, what God can save you from my hands, right? Remember Nebuchadnezzar? Then they get saved, and so he says, oh, the Most High God who's better than any God I've ever known. And so he is, that's why he calls him by Daniel, because he's referencing the God of Daniel. Go ahead. Right. Well, and there's great debate about this, and I read a, a good bit this week about this. That my understanding is that that Aramaic term could be interpreted either way, plural or singular. That it's not necessarily plural, and this could be. And there's certain um, scholarly people who believe this is a reference to the spirit in Daniel of the true. Um, God Most High. He'll say it in the next verse also. You got the same thing. But there's others who would say, no, this is plural, and it's referring to just uh, um, Nebuchadnezzar's understanding of how the gods worked in men. And so we don't know specifically. I tend to go with that he's talking about um, something that he doesn't understand, but he knows that there's a spirit of the one true God in Daniel. I lean that way. Because he knows there's something unique and special about Daniel. Okay? So, and he recognizes, because Daniel is the one who stood in front of him and said, not because there's anything special about me. Remember that? When he was interpreting the dream, he said, there's no reason that God would show me the, the dream and its interpretation because of anything in me. But simply he chose to show it to me so I could tell it to you. And he, he, he takes himself out of the equation and puts this as revelation from God to Nebuchadnezzar, not to Daniel. Now we look at it differently, but that's the way Daniel saw it, is that he was just the, the conduit that God was using to give the message to Nebuchadnezzar. Same thing is true in this dream. This is a, Daniel doesn't think there's... you know. He is the least conceited person in this picture, okay? Nebuchadnezzar being the opposite, Daniel being the humble one. But I think that Nebuchadnezzar understands that when Daniel comes before him to speak, that he's speaking for the one that he's praising at this point, the Most High God. And so he calls him by his Hebrew name. You know, I kind of wonder how he even knew what his Hebrew name was. Because this would have been changed way before he met Nebuchadnezzar. Go ahead. You see, you see Daniel's reaction in I think 19 where it says he wished there would not have been a Yeah. So you see a, a, a friendship yeah, absolutely. developing. Um, you know, so that I, I see how he knows Daniel's name is that all, these, all this time together they've, they've grown close. Yeah, and I, I, he may have called Daniel Daniel when they were in the court. You know, we don't know. But he very well could have. I, and, and they have grown close because Daniel honestly 
wishes this was about Nebuchadnezzar's friends, and, I mean enemies, instead of about him personally. I mean, he says it very plainly. And, you know, we've seen this in Daniel. Daniel doesn't ever speak things that aren't true. He always speaks. He's clever, and he always is, is wise in what he says, but he never speaks anything that's not true. Okay, so he comes in. The other guys can't interpret it. Nebuchadnezzar addresses him, calls him chief of the magicians, which is the title he gave him. So this would be chief of the wise men, the scholars. And, um, and then he begins to tell him this vision. Now, you have this tree and, and just name some of the characteristics of this tree that Nebuchadnezzar gives. I mean, there's a lot of them. All right, that it's large. Okay, what else? All right, it reaches to the sky, right? So it just means it's way up there. Okay, and there really couldn't be anything around it because it would have shaded everything and nothing could have grown around it. So it's important to remember when they chop it down. Right, that it had lush foliage and had fruit very abundantly. What else? Everybody could see it. Everybody, who, who's that include? The whole earth. The whole earth. Every person on the planet could see this tree. So that speaks of its massive size, speaks of its influence. What else? What? Beautiful. Like to look at this tree? All right, it provided, he named specific people and things. The birds were in its branches. The beasts were under its shade, right? Its fruit was eaten by whom? All creatures. That includes all the people. So everybody on the whole planet and all the animals could eat from this one tree. So this is, this is the magnificent tree, right? I mean, this is, speaks of, I believe it does speak of Nebuchadnezzar. And what would it say about Nebuchadnezzar? All right, the world is dependent on him. What else? That he was providing for his kingdom. Absolutely, that he was, he was providing for everybody in his kingdom and outside of his kingdom. What else? There's no person who is not touched on the planet by Nebuchadnezzar's rule. Everybody is influenced in some way by his rule. This is what's unique about Nebuchadnezzar, about the Medo-Persians, about the Greeks, and about the Romans, and about the uh, coming kingdom at the end of the world, and about God's eternal kingdom. It's those six that influence the whole planet all at once. There's not one today. There hasn't been one since the Roman Empire, and maybe not even the Roman Empire, that influenced the whole world. And there never will be another one until the one of the Antichrist at the end of the age. That one will influence every single person on the planet. And we know how that story unfolds later. And then God's kingdom will definitely influence not only every person, but the planet itself will be changed during the reign of Christ. 
And so those are it. There, there aren't any others. Don't expect someone to rise to power who's going to take over the whole world. It ain't going to happen. Sure, but they would not have been known to these guys. So, so, well, how do you rectify that issue? But, because then they're not directly influenced by him, supposedly. Because they, I mean, he doesn't know about them, they don't know about him. But wait if, a second. If you, if you look at um, South Africa and even uh, parts of Canada, they are now finding um, burials where there are Babylonian tablets that have been buried in Canada. In upstate New York, I think it was, um, and also in South America. So you can't say that Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom did not have a worldwide influence because they're finding it did. This, this we know, that the scriptures speak of these worldwide kingdoms, and there aren't many of them, and most of them are done, all but one. And we know that the Antichrist kingdom will be worldwide. So it will include the U.S., it will include Russia, it will include all of Europe, it will include the Middle East. It'll include all of that, except for with a little exclusion, it will influence them greatly, of Israel. But it will influence them dramatically. Because it will actually, the Antichrist will be seated in Jerusalem itself. So it will have influence. And so that, that's what it means, is that of everybody who was known, that it influenced them. And yeah, there, are, there clearly has been, um, in the progressive revelation, you know, other people groups. I mean, you've got South Americans who, you know, aren't written about in Scripture because they didn't know about them. You know, and, and so, but of all the people who they knew about, Nebuchadnezzar had influence. Go ahead. Yeah. There are plenty of other countries that play baseball. Right. They play at such a different level, they're not even taken into account when you talk about the World Series. Right, right. Or the World Cup in, in soccer, right. where we have a diminished role. <laughs> <laughs> right? The true football. Yeah. Uh, and, and, I mean, so, yeah, the World Series, the NBA, all of that. I mean, there clearly are other countries that play basketball in America. They used to beat us in the Olympics, right? Until we started using professional athletes. We got beat all the time, but no more. So, <laughs> Okay, so, so Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is like this big tree. And Nebuchadnezzar himself is like this big tree. Matter of fact, the tree represents Nebuchadnezzar. And he understands that. That's why he's so fearful. Because this tree gets chopped down. Right, so let's go into that part of what is here. Now these were the visions, verse 10. In my mind as I lay on my bed. And he talks about the big tree. And he talks about the foliage. And he talks about the fruit. And then he sees, And behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. Now I've got a bone to pick with the translators here. Okay? If you have a New American Standard, then you see that the word angelic is italicized, right? Why is that? Because it's not really in the manuscripts, okay? But then, you who have an ESV, you have the word angelic, right? No italics, because the ESV does not use italics. 
not in the New King James. I thought it was in the ESV. A watcher, that would be better because that's what the New King James says. It just says watcher. And, and nothing here speaks of an angel. Now, it may be an angel, but this is, this is what the translators do to try and influence you. And so whenever I read NAS, always leave out the italicized words because they're not really there. And it makes perfect sense without them. You can read it just as well without them as, or as with them. Because it's their influence. It's their translation. So they think this is an angel. And so they tell you that. But you, we don't have to necessarily agree with that. Go ahead. It says a watcher, a holy one. Right. Holy one. Holy one. Is that, is that in all the translations? Yep. The holy one, one is there. Okay. So there's this idea of not just any watcher. It is a holy one. It's a not a person. From the planet, right? Okay, because okay. it's a mess. It's a it's a holy one, a watcher from heaven. Now, there's some very unique things here. These watch this watcher never says that it's God's judgment against Nebuchadnezzar. He says it's the judgment of the holy ones. No, doesn't refer to God. He refers to other watchers with him. Kind of interesting. We'll talk about it a little bit. I see another hand over here somewhere. Okay. Go ahead. I've got MacArthur notes. Yeah, I know him. I know of him. I've actually shook his hand. Had dinner with him one time. Here in Woodstock, for that matter. He came to Woodstock. Not to see me. <laughs> he came and preached at the Real Evangelism Conference. Yeah. And so we had the privilege of going to dinner with him afterwards, just before we began Faith Community Church, to say, what do you think we ought to focus on? His answer was interesting. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, you're in suspense. It's done. <laughs> Yeah, and this holy would refer refer to like moral purity. Is 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 what that is referring to, but even Nebuchadnezzar would have never thought his gods were morally pure because they did all kinds of things to disrupt the, the planet that weren't good, often were bad. And so, um, but yeah, so this is unique. This is different. This is one from heaven. Now, why would Nebuchadnezzar say that he was from heaven? What did Daniel say about his God before he interpreted the first dream? Now you have to go back and look, right? Yeah. He's talking about all these gods and he says, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. So revelation of mysteries does not come from the Babylonian gods because none of those guys who believed in them could interpret this dream. 
revelation of mysteries comes from heaven and only from heaven because nobody else could reveal this mystery. This is the uniqueness of Daniel and his God. Nebuchadnezzar understands it. And so he understands that if there's someone coming and giving him a message that is coming from heaven. And so that's why he calls in, Nebu- calls in Daniel, the guy whose God is in heaven, to interpret the dream. He understands this relationship. He doesn't hold to it, I say. Why would I say that? Nebuchadnezzar does not believe that Daniel's God is the only God. And I don't even think he believes he's the, um, the, above all the other gods. He did consult the other guys first. That's one evidence. What else does he say? Yeah, he refers to his gods. Not that he's given up on them, but he still believes in them. So he believes that Daniel has a god, but he's mixed with all his gods too. So it's just another god, but he doesn't know him like Daniel does. So he's still, he's still polytheistic here. He's not monotheistic like Daniel is. He still believes in all these gods. Go ahead. Why does Nebuchadnezzar make the distinction that this holy one is a watcher? Why, why would he not just say, you know, Daniel's God? Or is there a way to know that? No. Does the angel call himself a watcher? Yeah, I think he calls himself a watcher. And and so Nebuchadnezzar calls him what he calls himself. Okay? It's a couple of verses later. Yeah. Where he, you know, he, he's saying this decree, this sentence, we'll talk about that when we get down there, not today. Right. So he's not one of from the planet. No, clearly, the he's from heaven. He says he comes down from heaven, so he's not a person. I guess my my question then is, why is this not an angel? Could be. Why is it? No. Could be. Right. <laughs> You're just saying it's not there in scripture. That's why. Yeah. yeah Could be God himself. Scripture. Right. But later on, when Daniel prays for 21 days and Michael comes to him and right. tells him, I was detained for a while dealing with this, this could be <laughs> of the same order. Right. But these are angels letting him know what to experience. Right? Very well could be. Very well could be. Go ahead. But I find it interesting that he knew that the man, the fourth man in the furnace, he referred to him as the as a son, a son of God. Right. Because he. These he refers to as watchers. Mm hmm. This is one of the reasons why people believe the person in the furnace was Christ himself. You know, and, and I'm not going to push against that. It could very well could have been a Christophany, or this could be a Christophany. You know, we, we just don't know. I don't think this one is. I think this is truly just an angel. Well, I mean, in the, in the furnace, he didn't speak to the guy in the furnace. <laughs> 
right. that person knows already first of all himself as a watcher, so he is using the same terminology. He is, and, and we have to recognize this is after the fact, and he's recounting what's happened. Now, interesting, this is all first-person Nebuchadnezzar. You know, we talked about this a little bit last time. This is all first-person Nebuchadnezzar. I, Nebuchadnezzar, here's what happened to me. And then he, this quote here of the watcher is by Nebuchadnezzar of what the watcher said to him. So this is all Nebuchadnezzar. Until you get to where Nebuchadnezzar asked Daniel to speak, it's all Nebuchadnezzar. He's, he's the one saying all of this. Okay, this is what's unique about this chapter. This is why this chapter is absurd and couldn't be really in the canon, right? Because this is in Daniel writing this. This is Nebuchadnezzar speaking it, but Daniel pinning the words. And we talked about that. When Nebuchadnezzar spoke them, that was not by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. When Daniel wrote them, that was by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Could have been at the same time or it could have been later. We don't know. But when Daniel penned the words, that was by inspiration of the Spirit. Either he's remembering or he's reading that someone else wrote it down. Not real sure. But when Daniel wrote the words, that was by inspiration of the Spirit. That was protected from error. That is perfect truth. Okay? So as, as we go down through here, this is the angelic one begins to speak in verse 14. He shouted out and spoke as follows, Chop down the tree. Right? So you're going to have this huge, massive tree that's going to fall to the earth. Now, chopping it down wasn't good enough, right? What else do they do to the tree? Cut the branches off like you would do if you were going to make logs out of a tree. What else? Strip all the leaves off the branches and scatter the fruit everywhere. So this represents what about this tree? Yeah total destruction, utter humiliation, take away all its glory and grandeur. It's just a bunch of sticks laying on the ground. Big sticks, but nevertheless sticks laying on the ground. Then he makes a very important addition to the decree, which is what? Leave the stump. Now, if you cut down a big tree, I've actually done this. Not a super, not one this big, right? And then you leave the stump. What happens? It grows again, right? Matter of fact, you can take that stump and you can dig it up and transplant it, and the tree will grow again. I've done that. Big tree in my yard. Didn't like where it was at because it blocked the view of the house. So I cut it down in my younger years. <laughs> dug up the stump. This is a big tree. Dug up the stump by hand with an axe and a shovel, drug it across the yard, put it in another hole beside the house, and it grew the same tree again. I didn't like where it was at. It was too close to the house, so I cut it down again. (laughs) This time, we chipped the stump up. No more tree. It's gone. So that tree grew twice in my yard. We've lived there a long time. So it can be done. That's what would happen to this stump. It would begin to sprout again. Now, it doesn't do that in this story. It doesn't do that, but it it could. What else do they do to the stump? 
put rings around it, an iron one and a bronze one, right? What's that all about? Preserve the stump. That's one of the thoughts that if you didn't do that, then possibly the stump could split. And with the rain coming and the dew coming, that it would begin to rot, at least part of it. That's possible. I, you know, iron and bronze. I don't think so. And everybody I read really doesn't know what the rings are about. Was there any agricultural, historical thing? Where they not that, that I could find. Not that I could. <coughs> but well, maybe. Yeah, possibly. But then you go and you read MacArthur, like my friend did, right? <laughs> And MacArthur says he thinks it symbolizes God holding the kingdom together during the years. And the reason he says that is because down in verse 27, I think it is. That's not it. 26. And it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree. Your kingdom will be assured to you after. So... It, it represents God holding the kingdom together so that Nebuchadnezzar could be reestablished. <coughs> this is what God does, right? He removes kings and establishes kings. He's in control of who's in control. And so this is, that's what MacArthur thinks it is. You know, no one else has a better idea because I read a bunch of them. Well, that's what he was asking. Is it a reference back to iron and bronze? But, you know, those, those came later. They didn't come during the reign of Babylon. So I don't think so. We'll ask God when we get to heaven. Why did you put the, iron, the rings around the tree? Well, notice gold is noticeably absent. It is. But Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. Well, clearly, iron with with Rome was about harshness and about strength. So, yeah, but I mean, I really don't know what the rings mean. Isn't bronze a symbol of judgment, though? I don't know. I I couldn't make that argument. Could you? (laughs) I I don't know. I haven't haven't gone there yet. So we don't know, and that's okay. There's some things that we don't know. We just know there are rings around the tree. Okay, so to wrap up today, let's finish this, what it says. This is where it definitely talks specifically about a person, right? Verse 17, let his mind be changed. Changed in what way? In what way? From a man's to a beast. He's going to go absolutely mad. He's not going to be the same person in his mind. Totally changed. Now, who can do that? God can do it, right? What with God is impossible? Nothing. And so his mind becomes like that of a beast. Right now, when you have this stump out there in the field, 
it speaks of it. So what's in the field now? Once the, once the tree falls and you strip off all the foliage, and then what, what grows in its place? Grass. grass. And, you know, it talks about the stump sharing the grass, right? And it talks about the dew falling on the stump. So this speaks of Nebuchadnezzar, that this is what's going to fall on him. He's going to have, he's going to be out there with the grass, and he's going to have, be out there with the wild animals, and he's going to have dew fall on him. This is what's going to happen to him. Because as a stump, that's still Nebuchadnezzar. Still represents Nebuchadnezzar. So his mind is changed for seven periods of time, and then my Bible has such as years. <coughs> we don't know what the seven periods of time are. Okay? You can you can make all kinds of references and go and chase things, but in the end you don't know. Is it days, months, weeks, years? Don't know. Go ahead. Do you know it has to be long enough for hair to grow out? Yep. Grow out so long, and gross. yep. <coughs> long and gross. I like that. <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, this, this is impossible. A king losing his mind and being established power. The difference, though, an argument you could make against that is the fact that everyone knew what was going to happen. In other words, they say, I'm going to go crazy, but then I'm going to reestablish it. Mm-hmm. So there's this idea that, okay, this it happened. Mm-hmm. The idea that he went mad happened. So the logical thing is, it also is not, he's also going to be restored after right. seven periods of time. So you better be careful. So the fact that, that that he was allowed back power, that idea that that right. didn't happen to me is not well, really a good argument since they knew what was going to happen. Yeah, while Nebuchadnezzar is recounting this after he's reestablished, the actual events of the interpretation and all are before all of that happened. So we here we have at least eight years because the pronouncement is given, then it's a year before Nebuchadnezzar is actually goes mad. And then we have, or I'm using years, right? I'm using their argument. Then seven more periods of time. Now, we do know it's a year from the time when the proclamation is given until he goes mad. That he says. But we don't know the seven periods of time. Go ahead. You, you, see, you see the king is, is the, the tree. Right. At the very beginning. And, and his influence, his fruit. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. And maybe we can avoid this. And so you see, it's, it's God coming in and trying to change the, uh, the fruit and the influence of this kingdom for yeah. him rather than for the pagan deities that, that they did follow. Yeah, and you wonder, you don't know, if the whole world suffered during this time because Nebuchadnezzar wasn't in power and wasn't then feeding the whole planet, influencing them. And, and maybe the whole world suffered during this time along with Nebuchadnezzar. You don't know. Do you even know if there was a ruler in his stead during that seven time period? Nope. Like I said, Babylonian documents don't refer to it. Well, I was going to say, if Daniel was second in command before, then... Could very well could be. If one of the recorded of him, he was actually 
Right. Well, I think the Hebrew was running the place the whole time, not, not just when Nebuchadnezzar was gone for seven years. Yeah, I think those four guys pretty much ran the kingdom because they ran Babylon for sure, right? They were the administrators of Babylon. Okay, so just to finish, when he says this sentence is by decree of the angelic watchers and the decision is a command of the holy ones, and this is the reason, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. That's pretty straightforward, is it not? The deist would say, can't be true. Can't be true, right? Because the deists believe in what? God who created everything, absolutely. But then just left it to its own. Let it go its course. Okay? And the most heinous theology of the deist is because God did that and is not involved in his creation, then Jesus Christ was not God. Because God would never be involved in his own creation. So that's their greatest crime is they believe they don't believe in Jesus Christ as God incarnate. So you could say of anyone who is a deist that he's a unbeliever, condemned, because that theology doesn't believe in Jesus Christ as God incarnate. So there is no Savior. There were a lot of our forefathers who were deists, not just Thomas Jefferson. There were several of them that took their Bibles out and cut pages out of them. Not just him. There's multiple of them. So this is a, you know, it's a sentence. It's a decree. It's a declaration. The, the Holy One, I mean, he says it over and over and over again. He's basically saying the same thing. There, this is ironclad. There is no escaping this. This is the judgment. This is what's going to happen. No way to escape it. This has been decreed. And interesting, like we said, this is not decreed by God. It's decreed by the holy ones who certainly represent God and speak for God. But they're the ones who say all of this. And they even, he even says, um, this, is the decision, this decision is the command of the holy ones. So, but they, they do refer, they're speaking for God without any question because their purpose is to make the most holy one known to all the peoples of the earth that's their purpose and what, what's going on here this has been God's purpose the whole time right that's why he saved the three guys in the fiery furnace so everybody on the planet would, or certainly in the Babylonian kingdom would know about the God of Israel so we'll pick up with Daniel's Reaction and then interpretation of this dream next time. Final comments, question you got? Go ahead. <laughs> I have a question why Nebuchadnezzar would ask Daniel to tell him the dream first and then interpret it the first time, but then give him the dream the second time. Yeah, the only thing I can come up with is he's mellowed. <laughs> he's older, he's wiser, he doesn't want to get shown up again. He doesn't threaten anybody to tear them limb from limb. Doesn't say I'll make your house a rubbish heap. I guess the reason I'm asking that is because when you get bad news in the interpretation, you don't want to accept it. Yeah. So he'd be more likely to challenge that. But in the first one, because he told him the dream as well, he'd be more likely to accept it. So. You know, and, and I mean, Nebuchadnezzar has the dream. Daniel interprets it. 
Nebuchadnezzar ignores it. And a year later it happens. But he ignores it. Because we can see what he's doing next week when he's walking around on his rooftop saying, look at my kingdom. Right? Anything else? Thanks for your time.